All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 51 for June 2023. Killed by Indians. is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Ballackinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. This episode, number 51 of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories Killed by Indians, is a long one. This is the first time I have broken the two-hour mark, so you may want to divide it into sections. It's about four young men at Laurel Hill East, all of whom were killed before their 30th birthday during battles with indigenous peoples. George Montgomery Harris died in the lava beds of Northern California while battling Captain Jack and the Modoc tribe in 1873. Benjamin Hubert Hodgson was killed during the 1876 Battle of Little Bighorn in Montana against Cheyenne and Arapaho warriors. Fellow Laurel Hill tour guide Tom Keels will tell his story. Jonathan Williams Biddle, whose father Henry Biddle had been killed during the Civil War, lost his life in the Battle of Bear Paw, also in Montana, in 1877 against Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce. And James Hansel French was killed in the San Mateo Mountains of New Mexico Territory in 1880 as his Buffalo Soldiers troops battled the great Apache chief Victorio and his warriors. Welcome to episode number 51 of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories Killed by Indians. The story of the indigenous peoples of Philadelphia begins in the long ago time with the emergence of turtle and the earth that formed on its back. From this first earth, the first tree grew, and so too did the first sprouts. These sprouts grew and grew and became first man and first woman. 
and so the people first came to be. When you visit the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts in its magnificent Frank Furnace design building, one of the paintings that will almost certainly grab your eye is Benjamin West's 1772 masterpiece, The Treaty of Penn with the Indians. It's a massive oil, more than six feet high, nine feet wide. It recounts the popular belief that in 1682, the year after he founded the city of Philadelphia, William Penn met with the Lenni, Lenape, and Delaware peoples under an elm tree at Shackamaxon and traded gifts for land. The painting features a large bowl of white cloth at its center, the apparent object that is up for barter. Penn had been granted the rights to 8,000 acres of land, roughly 12 and a half square miles, by King Charles II of England. As a Quaker, this painting shows him choosing to do what was morally and ethically right within his beliefs and negotiating peacefully to compensate the Native Americans who were living in what the colonists called Pennsylvania Colony. The word Shakamaxon comes from the Lenape term Sakamauchin Ing, which means to make a chief or king place. This was where the Lenape crowned their many family Sakima, the chiefs, or their three clan Kitikima, big or clan chiefs of the Lenape nation. It was also an important summer fishing spot for the Native Americans, supplied them with eels and other Piscine essentials. In the West painting, muscular Indians are decorated in green, red, and white with feather headdresses, partly shaved heads, beaded armbands and headbands, and large earrings. Europeans are in somber brown and gray clothing, which was really more typical of 1771 than the more decorative styles of 1682. Penn is easily identified by his white neckcloth. The peace negotiated with the Lenape Turtle Clan was supposed to last, quote, as long as the waters run in the rivers and creeks, and as long as the stars and moon endure. It endured for about 70 years, until the Penn's Creek Massacre of 1755 during the French and Indian Wars. The location of Penn's Treaty was memorialized by the Penn Society in 1827, when they placed an obelisk, and then further by the dedication of a public space in 1893 known as Penn Treaty Park. It's in the modern Philadelphia neighborhoods of Fishtown, Kensington, and Port Richmond. In 1894, when the 37-foot statue of William Penn was lifted to its current location a section at a time, there are 14 pieces welded together. It was positioned to face the northeast toward Penn Treaty Park. You can hear more about this in All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories number 18, The Calder Connection. If you can stand the exhaust fumes, visit the bronze statue of Lenape Chief Tamanend at Front and Market Street. It's been there since 1995. The plaque on the base notes that Tamanend was considered the patron saint of America by the colonists prior to American independence. Tamanend stands on a turtle. He's flanked by an eagle, Lenape symbols of Mother Earth and the Great Spirit. 
In his name, a Tammany Society was formed in Philadelphia in 1772. When New York took up the society a while later, they called their meeting place Tammany Hall. In the early days of the country, King Tammany Day was celebrated every 1st of May, and in 2003, proposals were made in both the U.S. House and U.S. Senate to declare May 1st St. Tammany Day. But the proposal died without being voted into law. Now here's some good barroom trivia. When Boston was granted a National Football League franchise in 1932, it took the Boston Braves' name and image from its baseball landlord at Braves Field. But when the team moved to Fenway Park in 1936, it renamed itself the Redskins in homage to their new landlord, the Boston Red Sox. The next year, when the team moved to Washington, D.C., the Redskins' name and the image of Tamanend traveled with them. The Washington football team has recently changed their name. And St. Tammany Parish is the only one of Louisiana's nine parishes not named for a Roman Catholic saint. William Penn strongly believed that Native Americans should be treated fairly. He traveled to the interior of the colony. He befriended different Native American tribes. He even learned to speak the language of the Susquehannock, the Shawnee, and Lene Lenape. He insisted that Native Americans be paid a fair price for any land that was purchased from them. And if there were a dispute between Native Americans and settlers, Penn commanded that a committee of equal numbers of Native Americans and settlers resolve the dispute. But this idealized West painting was commissioned nearly a century after the fact by William's son, Thomas Penn, born in 1702 when William was 58 years old. Thomas made his first trip to the New World in 1732. He was the first member of his family to do so since William had left in 1701, the year before Thomas was born. Thomas's brothers John and Richard were anxious for their brother to come up with a revenue stream from the colony as they were about 8,000 pounds in debt. That's equivalent to $1.2 million in 2023. Working together with James Logan, the royal governor of Pennsylvania and the namesake for Logan Circle, Thomas Penn made plans to acquire more land from the Lenape. In 1736, Thomas Penn claimed that a deed from 1686 showed that the Lenape promised to sell a tract that began at the junction of the Upper Delaware River and the tributary Lehigh River near present-day eastern Pennsylvania and extended as far west as a man could walk in a day and a half. Hence the name the Walking Purchase, or Walking Treaty. The original 17th century document might have been a verbal agreement, or an unsigned treaty, an unratified treaty, or an outright forgery. Penn's agents had already started to sell land in the Lehigh Valley in the disputed area along the Lehigh River as if the treaty were in force, and prior to the Lenape vacating the still-inhabited area. To allay the Lenape's misgivings and suspicions, Logan produced a map that misrepresented the farther Lehigh River as the closer Tohican Creek. 
It included the dotted line that showed a seemingly reasonable path that the walkers would take. The Lenapes and their leader, Lapa Winsoth, were satisfied that the land in question was not so terrible a price to honor the old deed, so they signed on. Lenape leaders assumed that about 40 miles was the longest distance that could be covered under those conditions. But James Logan hired the three fastest racers in the colony to run on a prepared trail. They were supervised during this so-called walk by the sheriff of Bucks County. And over 36 hours, starting on 19 September 1737, the best runner reached the vicinity of present-day Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, 70 miles away. At the end of the walk, the sheriff drew a perpendicular line on the map back toward the northeast and claimed all the land east of these two lines that ended at the Delaware River. This resulted in an area of 1,200,932 acres. This is only slightly smaller than the state of Rhode Island. The land was in the modern seven eastern Pennsylvania counties of Pike, Monroe, Carbon, Schuylkill, Northampton, Lehigh, and Bucks. The Lenape protested, but to no avail. But the peace which had been made between William Penn and the Lene Lenape probably prevented major conflicts between natives and settlers, unlike other colonies like the Anglo-Powhatan Wars in Virginia, which included the 1622 Jamestown Massacre the Pequot Wars in the Massachusetts Bay and Connecticut colonies, the Tuscarora War in North Carolina, the Yamasee War in South Carolina, and many others. Well, the founding fathers gathered in Philadelphia were of mixed opinions on Native Americans. Benjamin Franklin believed that Native Americans had a lot to teach Europeans about living in harmony with nature and each other. Thomas Jefferson believed that Native American peoples were a noble race who were, in body and mind, equal to the white man. And they were endowed with an innate moral sense and marked capacity for reason. Nevertheless, Jefferson believed that Native Americans were culturally and technologically inferior. He counseled his friend and protege, Meriwether Lewis, to treat all Indian tribes in the most appeasing manner as he and William Clark went west to explore the new territory acquired in the Louisiana Purchase. The Founding Fathers decided that they would treat Native Americans with the same respect do any other nation. Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution establishes the procedure for ratifying agreements and empowers the President of the United States as primary negotiator of agreements between the United States and other countries after approval by two-thirds of the Senate. It treated the tribes as it treated other sovereign nations. But the Constitution is not very explicit about the termination of treaties. Now, in the late 18th century, it was not unusual to see indigenous people in native garb on the streets of Philadelphia, either for business or political bargaining. They even attended theater performances and gave their own shows on occasion to raise money. 
For more information about this little discussed tidbit of American history, I strongly recommend the excellent podcast, Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia, number 21, I Fear No One, Native American Performance in 19th Century Philadelphia. Check it out. In his 1855 autobiography, Personal Recollections of the Stage, actor, comedian, theater impresario William B. Wood, Laurel Hill East, Section L, recounts an awkward meeting that he witnessed at the Indian Queen Tavern, a popular inn on South 4th Street. One of his fellow lodgers was a gaunt six-foot officer named Smith, who several years before had been shot through the chest and lived with an unhealed fistula. After discussing Captain Smith's capacity for gambling and alcohol, Wood says, A deputation from one of the native tribes arrived at the city, and they were quartered at the Indian Queen. On their arrival, the guests were naturally attracted to the door in order to obtain a sight of the newcomers, among the rest, Smith. Several of the party had passed into the house, but when a principal chief turned to enter, but scarcely had advanced two steps when he suddenly stopped short, and he fixed his eyes firmly upon the captain, who reached out his hand in friendly action to the stranger. Another moment's pause ensued when the chief, still holding Smith's hand, exclaimed with an expression and vehemence altogether unlike the usual Indian stoicism, Ha! Ha! No, 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 no! I shot! I shot! I kill you! The two former enemies then sat at a table together with an interpreter and shared that memory of years before when the chief had deliberately targeted the captain as it seemed like Smith was ferrying orders back and forth between his superiors. The Indian fired his rifle and watched his prey's hand fall to his side and lose his grip on the bridle. Satisfied that the white man had suffered a mortal wound, the chief melted quietly back into the woods with his tribe. This full story of this encounter takes up five pages of Wood's autobiography, which is available online. The legendary elm tree marking the treaty spot blew down during a storm on 5 March 1810. The sometimes uneasy truce between settlers and indigenous people lasted only a short while longer. Conflicts were particularly heated in the southern United States, which white settlers found was ideal for cotton and sugar growth, but which had been occupied for centuries by the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole. Many of these so-called civilized tribes had tried to assimilate with white settlers, sometimes even to the point of buying and owning enslaved black people. When Andrew Jackson was elected president in 1828, things changed for the worse for the natives. Jackson had grown up in frontier settlements, where stories of Indian attacks were common. At various times in his military career, Jackson had been allied with indigenous peoples, but had also waged brutal campaigns against them. His attitude toward indigenous tribes was not unusual for the time, though by today's standards he would be considered racist, as he believed tribal members to be inferior to whites. Jackson also believed them to be like children who needed guidance. 
And by that way of thinking, Jackson may well have believed that forcing indigenous peoples to move hundreds of miles westward may have been for their own good, since he believed that they would never fit in with a white society. In the 1820s, Chickasaws, under pressure, had begun moving westward. The U.S. Army started to force Choctaws to move in 1831. The leaders of the Creeks were imprisoned in 1837, and 15,000 were forced to move westward. The Seminoles, based in Florida, managed to fight a long war against the U.S. Army until they finally moved westward in 1857. And after the discovery of gold near Dahlonega, Georgia in 1838, Cherokees were forced to move west to present-day Oklahoma. Of the 15,000 former native occupants of Georgia farmland, an estimated 4,000 perished during the genocidal Trail of Tears that forced them a thousand miles from their homes. And according to an article in the Detroit Free Press in 2016, to this day many Cherokees will not use $20 bills because they bear the likeness of Andrew Jackson. Jackson's portrait on that bill, by the way, is taken from a painting by Laurel Hill East resident Thomas Sully. No consensus exists on how many people lived in the Americas before the arrival of Europeans, and extensive research is still going on. Current estimates range anywhere from 2.1 up to 18 million people living in the North American continent prior to European colonization. Because of Eurasian disease, such as influenza, pneumonic plagues, smallpox, in combination with conflict, forced removal, enslavement, imprisonment, and outright warfare with European newcomers, the number of Indians dropped to less than half a million in the 19th century. There have been more than 40 Indian wars plus many skirmishes under the government of the United States. They cost the lives of about 19,000 white men, women, and children, including those killed in individual confrontations, and the lives of a minimum of 30,000 Native Americans, although the exact number of slain is probably a lot more than that. To add insult to injury, the 15th Amendment, passed in 1870, granted all U.S. citizens the right to vote, regardless of race, but it excluded Native Americans because they were not considered U.S. citizens. It was not until the Snyder Act of 1924, that's less than a century ago, that Native Americans born in the United States were allotted full U.S. citizenship and allowed to vote. As of the 2020 census, one out of 300 residents of Philadelphia self-identifies as a Native American. Many Philadelphians fought and died in these battles. Enlisted fatalities were usually buried at their site of death, but officers typically came from moneyed families, so their bodies were embalmed on site and returned to the city of brotherly love to a final resting place in the family plot. At least four permanent residents of Laurel Hill East, all junior officers, died because of injuries suffered in battles against Native Americans. Lieutenant George Montgomery Harris, killed in 1873 during the Modoc Wars. 
Lieutenant Benjamin Hubert Hodgson killed at Little Bighorn in 1876. Lieutenant Jonathan Williams Biddle killed at Bear Paw in 1877. And Lieutenant James Hansel French killed in the San Mateo Mountains in 1880. It is their stories you will hear in this podcast. In the case Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, 1831, Chief Justice John Marshall ruled that indigenous tribes were distinct, independent political communities that had an unquestioned right to the land they occupied. But he did not consider them foreign nations that could bring suit before the Supreme Court. Instead, he called them domestic dependent nations. Treaties between the United States and Indian tribes were initially negotiated by separate political powers dealing with each other on roughly equal grounds. But the tribes slowly lost their bargaining leverage, and the United States came to negotiate treaties from a position of overwhelming strength. The Modocs were an indigenous group occupying northeastern California and southeastern Oregon. Until 1846, the Modocs had little contact with Euro-Americans, except for the occasional French fur trapper. Now, that's the same year that a group of Oregonians, led by brothers Lindsay and Jesse Applegate, mapped a wagon road from Fort Hall in what is now Idaho to the Williamette Valley in Oregon. The wagon trail followed ancient Modoc trade routes across northern Nevada, northeastern California, and south-central Oregon. It gave emigrants another way into Oregon besides the Columbia River's perilous rapids. At first, the Modocs were barely troubled by the passing wagons and let them move undisturbed. But as the emigrant tide swelled, it left in its wake overgrazed meadows, decimated game, fouled water. Then an epidemic, most likely measles, swept the Modoc villages. Of a population numbering about 2,000, the disease claimed 150 lives. By 1849, aggrieved Modocs were starting to harry incoming settlers, including those headed to California and Oregon in the search for gold. The newly admitted state of California noticed these indigenous nuisances. Although popular culture makes Texas the standard bearer for Native American and pioneer clashes, California was the most violent frontier territory in the American West. On 6 January 1851, Peter Burnett, the Golden State's first civilian governor, gave a state-of-the-state address focused primarily on California's Indian problem. Burnett was a former Missouri enslaver, and he believed that racial conflict between Euro-Americans and natives was inevitable. He said, A war of extermination will continue to be waged until the Indian race becomes extinct. The state legislature thought this plan was fine, and they soon floated the first of $1.5 million in bonds. That's about $47 million in present-day dollars. This was to fund local militias whose task was to kill Indians. 
One of the early California militias was led by Ben Wright, a lapsed Quaker turned Indian fighter who loved to kill indigenous people. Wright's troop invaded Modoc country in the summer of 1852 and killed somewhere between 30 and 90 tribe members, including the father of Captain Jack, a man we will hear about shortly. In retaliation, the Modocs attacked a 16-wagon train along the Thule Lake the next year and inflicted significant casualties on the party. Wright retaliated with a larger militia that capped its campaign by slaughtering some 40 Modocs under a false flag of truce. And when Wright and his men rode back to Wairika with scalps hanging off their shot pouches, they were hailed as heroes. In 1854, an Oregon militia killed two dozen more Modocs. In 1856, a California militia claimed to have killed more than 185 Modocs. In reality, it looks like they slew only one, a woman. Modocs, nonetheless, were starting to get scarce. In 1864, the United States signed a treaty with the Modoc, the Klamath, and the Yahuskin Band of Snake Tribes that established the Klamath Reservation. It required that the tribes cede their land bounded on the north by the 44th parallel, on the west and south by the ridges of the Cascade Mountains, and on the east by lines touching Goose Lake and Henley Lake back up to the 44th parallel. The original lands of these indigenous groups had been 20 million acres. It was now slashed to a million. In return for the land, the United States was to make a lump sum payment of $35,000 and annual payments totaling $80,000 over 15 years, as well as provide infrastructure and staff for a reservation and protect the natives from settlers. The treaty stated that if the Indians drank or even stored intoxicating liquor on the reservation, payments could be withheld and that the United States could locate additional tribes on the reservation in the future. The U.S. Indian agent negotiating the treaty estimated the total population of the three tribes at about 2,000 when the treaty was signed. The United States did not keep up its end of the bargain. This smaller reservation did not provide enough food for both the Klamath and the Modoc peoples and their lives were harsh and humiliating. When the government did not supply the promised provisions, the Modocs were reduced to eating their horses. Illness and tension between the tribes increased. The Modoc requested a separate reservation closer to their ancestral home, but neither the federal nor the California government was interested. In 1870, Kintpoash, who was called Captain Jack by the settlers, and whose father had been killed by the Quaker Indian fighter Ben Wright, led a band of about 300 Modoc off the reservation and back to their traditional homelands. They built a village near the Lost River. These Modoc felt they had not been adequately represented in the treaty negotiations and wished to end the harassment by the Klamath on the reservation. On 29 November, 1872, the day that Horace Greeley died, a few weeks after Ulysses Grant was re-elected president, 
soldiers sent by the federal government arrived to arrest the Modocs and herd them back to their reservation. No sooner had the troopers of Company B, 1st U.S. Cavalry, dismounted when 2nd Lieutenant Frazier Boutel drew his revolver and fixed his stare on a tribesman whom settlers had nicknamed Scarface Charlie. The young Modoc, rifle at the ready, glared back from just a few yards away. Boutel snapped up his revolver. Charlie raised his rifle. Both fired. And before the smoke had cleared in the early morning light, the Modoc war had broken out. Buell and Scarface Charlie remained standing and unhurt, but a firefight broke out around them. A few Modocs went down in the first volley, and one was dead. But the troopers stood in the open as the warriors dived for cover, and they took the worst of it. Eight dropped, one dead on the spot, another soon after. Somehow, Boutel managed to rally his depleted unit, ordered a charge, and pushed the Modoc men out into the brush beyond the village. Boutel's troopers then evicted the Modoc elders, women, and children, destroyed all abandoned weapons, and set the vacant winter houses on fire. Simultaneously, fire and fury fell on a smaller Modoc village on the east bank of the Lost River. A vigilante posse from Linkville had followed the troopers south, and they got the firefight that they were gunning for. In the exchange, one vigilante shotgunned a six-year-old child and then turned his weapon on a mother and infant. The mother survived the blast, but Buckshot tore her baby in half. Most of the retreating Modocs gathered at the mouth of the Lost River on Thule Lake, piled into canoes, and began the long paddle to the south shore over the state line in California. Led by Captain Jack, they were bound for the Stronghold, a plateau amid the lava beds on the southwest corner of the lake, where threatened Modocs had learned to take refuge for thousands of years. As the evacuees paddled to safety, Hooker Jim from the destroyed eastern village led eight other mounted Modocs down the lakeshore, bent on revenge for the shooting of the women and children, which was an unforgivable violation of tribal rules of engagement. By the time they had connected with those holed up in the lava beds, those warriors had shot down a dozen or so settlers, all men and adolescent boys. With the Modocs dug in to the lava fields they knew so well, the Modoc War was fought as a siege. Appointed by Brigadier General Edward Canby, commander of the Department of the Columbia, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Wheaton assembled a 300-strong force of federal soldiers and militiamen from Oregon and California. They were supported by two mountain howitzers. On the other side, the Modocs fielded 50 or so riflemen to defend more than 100 villagers, including elders, women, children, and at least one newborn. Lieutenant Colonel Wheaton ordered a dawn assault on the stronghold on 17 January 1873. With his 6 to 1 advantage, he was so confident of victory that he did not bother to reconnoiter the fog-shrouded battleground. This was a huge mistake. By day's end, nine soldiers and militiamen lay dead, 28 wounded, three mortally, 
and others too seriously to return to action. The Modocs suffered not so much as a powder burn. By exploiting their familiarity with the lava bed's torturous terrain and the high ground of the stronghold, the underdogs had flipped the strategic script. News of the debacle so embarrassed the army that General Canby relieved Wheaton and took personal field command. At the same time, prominent Oregonians lobbied U.S. Interior Secretary Columbus Delano to appoint a peace commission and perhaps negotiate a less costly end to the conflict. Delano won over President Grant and General of the Army William T. Sherman to the plan, declared a truce in the lava beds, and selected the commissioners. Delano named as chair Alfred Meacham, who had served as U.S. Superintendent of Indian Affairs in Oregon when the Modocs were reduced to eating their horses on the reservation. In fact, they blamed Meacham for that hardship. Then there was Commissioner Jesse Applegate, the trailblazer through Modoc territory, who for years had been fomenting war on the sly. He wanted to drive the Modocs off their land and turn it into a ranching empire for himself and cattle baron Jesse Carr. The Modocs knew what Applegate was up to and justly suspected his motives. As the Peace Commission was assembling, New York reporter Edward Fox arrived to cover the paused war. It was an expensive gambit by the New York Herald, the leading East Coast newspaper. Fox was given a salary, and the paper paid for his lengthy reports to be telegraphed word by pricey word to New York. Fox insinuated himself into a party of local settlers heading into the stronghold to arrange a meeting with the Peace Commission. The Modocs lacked experience with newspapers, and few spoke the white man's tongue. Yet they recognized in Fox an unusual opportunity to get their story to a wider audience. In the resulting published account of his adventures among the Modocs, Fox laid blame for the war mostly on Oregon settlers like Applegate, who coveted the tribe's land. Yet, the story won nationwide notice less for its advocacy than for Fox's plucky reporting. Meanwhile, the Peace Commission was making little headway. Already skeptical of Meacham and Applegate, the latter of whom resigned in disgust, the Modocs now came to distrust Canby. They saw that the general used the truce to reinforce his original 300 men to some 1,000, add four cohorn mortars to the artillery, and move his camps to the very doorstep of the stronghold. The final straw came when a cavalry patrol made off with most of the Modoc's remaining horses and Canby refused to return the animals. The Modoc's were cornered, and they knew it. The tribe split over what to do. Captain Jack, Scarface Charlie, and several others argued for surrender, saying they trusted that the U.S. government would treat them well. Curly-headed doctor, a shaman who'd been leading an early version of the ghost dance to rouse the Modocs spiritually, saw the conflict as an apocalypse that would wipe out the settlers and resurrect the old days, so he advocated for an all-out fight. His son-in-law, Hooker Jim, agreed, less from prophetic fervor than out of fear that a surrender would land him and his eight accomplices atop the gallows 
for having slain settlers. Regardless, the pair convinced most Modocs to join them in an act of existential desperation. Specifically, set up a meeting with the Peace Commission, then attack with concealed weapons. Captain Jack had little choice but to bow to the majority, and he chose Canby as their target. Toby Riddle was a Modoc woman married to a mixed indigenous white man who served as a translator for the army. When she learned of the assassination plot, she told Canby. The general dismissed her as a hysterical alarmist before he headed off with the rest of the Peace Commission to the meeting site about a mile from the stronghold. There, the Modoc delegation waited around a sagebrush fire. The date was 11 April. 1873, Good Friday. When Canby arrived, he handed out cigars and, using an interpreter, began conversation with Captain Jack. He advised the Modocs to surrender and trust him to find them a safe reservation somewhere warm, an offer he had already made repeatedly. He also insisted the soldiers would remain until the parties reached a settlement. Suddenly, Captain Jack stood, shouted an order, drew a pistol, and he pointed it at Canby. Dumbfounded, the general froze, even when the handgun misfired. Canby remained seated as Captain Jack recocked the revolver, squeezed the trigger, and sent a slug into the general's brain. A second shot to the head and a knife to the neck finished Canby. Meanwhile, Boston Charlie put two rounds into the chest and the head of Reverend Eliezer Thomas, the Methodist minister who had replaced Applegate on the Peace Commission. And Shanchin John put four bullets into Meacham, who was rescued by troopers and survived, but was permanently scarred and disabled. Captain Jack started the process of scalping his victims, but was scared off by the approach of other troops who heard the shots fired. The Modoc's strategy had failed miserably. Under widely understood tribal rules of engagement in northeastern California, killing the other side's leader would prompt that side to retreat, and the Modocs expected their surprise strike to have just that effect, and they had badly miscalculated. Because of Fox's reporting, the death of General Canby gripped people like no event since the assassination of President Lincoln eight years earlier. Flags flew at half-mast. The national and international press vilified the Modocs for killing General Canby, who was the only commissioned general of the regular U.S. Army to be killed during the Indian Wars. Although George Armstrong Custer had been a breveted brigadier general of volunteers during the Civil War, he held the rank of a lieutenant colonel in 1876 at Little Bighorn. The Times of London denounced the killings as a dastardly outrage, and Harper's Weekly called the Modocs wild beasts. The San Francisco Chronicle devoted its front page to a story that labeled Captain Jack the Red Judas, and it called the killings the most damnable plot that ever disgraced even the Indian character. The Philadelphia Public Ledger demanded an eye for an eye, while the Chicago Tribune simply demanded that the Modocs be exterminated. 
a Wairika, California newspaper went so far as to call the killing of Canby the most dastardly assassination yet known in either ancient or modern history. The Modoc War now escalated into a cauldron of conflict. No longer was it a matter of rounding up a few Indians who had gone off reservation. Any chance for compromise vanished and the Modocs were put on the fast track to destruction. To ensure that outcome, General Sherman chose as Canby's replacement Colonel Jefferson C. Davis, a senior Union officer whose ruthlessness during the 1864 March to the Sea he had admired. However, Davis first needed to get to the lava beds from Indiana, a journey sure to eat up most of two weeks. Sherman was loath to stay the hand of vengeance that long, so he telegraphed interim commander Colonel Alvin Gillum to hit the Modocs with an attack so strong and persistent that their fate may be commensurate with their crime. You will be fully justified in their utter extermination. Gillum served up that assault on April 15th. He attacked the stronghold from both west and east. The soldiers cut the Modocs off from their water supply at Thule Lake and harassed them with cohorn mortar fire. After nightfall on the second day, most of the Modocs, men, women, children, and elders, with their dogs and horses, slipped out of the stronghold along an unguarded, narrow pathway. They threaded the needle between scouts on one side and army artillerymen on the other. A few Modoc sharpshooters remained behind to reinforce the deception. The others headed for ice caves in the southern lava beds that offered both cover and water. The army had lost seven killed and 13 wounded in the action. The Modocs, three warriors, and a handful of women. For 10 days, the stealthy Modocs remained so well concealed in their new haunts that on 26 April they were able to ambush a 67-man patrol as the unsuspecting troopers took a lunch break. This so-called Battle of San Butte was named for the high ground from which the far smaller force of Modocs fired down on the lounging soldiers. This was the Army's costliest engagement of the war, as nearly two-thirds of the patrol were taken out, 22 killed, 18 wounded. Finally, the Modocs called off the fire, possibly to save ammunition, and Scarface Charlie was heard to say, We don't want to kill you all at once. You can go home now. One of the wounded was Philadelphia Lieutenant George Montgomery Harris of the 4th Artillery Battery K. Harris was born 21 August 1846 at 1715 Locust Street to George Washington Harris and Ellen Reed Berkeley McElvain Harris. His mother was related to the Episcopal bishop, author, and educator Charles Pettit McElvain, who was twice chaplain of the United States Senate in 1822 and again in 1824. George had two brothers who died young, but another younger brother, Charles, was a successful Philadelphia physician. George graduated from West Point in 1868 and was commissioned second lieutenant with the 10th U.S. Infantry on 15 June. 
The next year, he was a member of the 4th U.S. Artillery Battery, where he was serving at the time of the Modoc War. After he was shot through the back at Sand Butte, he waited for rescue, which did finally arrive with men and stretchers. He and other wounded were tenderly carried over the treacherous, uneven ground back to base camp. It took 13 hours to travel the five miles over the lava beds. Lieutenant Harris was noted to bear his wounds bravely and silently. He was cared for in a wall-pitched tent, and a telegraph was sent to his mother in Philadelphia. Now, this was only four years after the first transcontinental railroad had been completed. Ellen Harris received the painful dispatch and immediately planned to travel west to be with her son. Commanding Officer Major Trimble kept records of what happened. The refined and delicate lady, past middle age, she was 58 years old, lost not a moment after getting the painful dispatch. But taking train to San Francisco from her home in Philadelphia, journeyed day and night until reaching the terminus of railroad transportation at Redding, California. Thence, she came on without rest by stagecoach, ambulance, or spring wagon to the vicinity of the high bluffs which bound the lava country. Thence, by saddle mule down the boulder-strewn trail until the camp was reached and her darling boy clasped in tender embrace. I was on duty some distance from the main camp when my attention was called to a strange object traveling down the trail and which could not be made out properly until a gray lace streamer floating behind established the fact that it was a lady's veil. Only a mother's devotion could have withstood such a journey and the good Lord seemed to have held the ebbing life of her son in his own powerful keeping until her arrival. She was thus able to soothe his dying moments, to be recognized by him, and remain by his cot until the last. His death occurred just 24 hours after she arrived. The body was enclosed as fittingly as the circumstances would allow, and carried to the hilltop, where it was placed, I believe, in the same conveyance that had brought the dear lady from the frontier to the Modoc stronghold, and borne thence to its last resting place near his native city. Lieutenant George Montgomery Harris died on 12 May 1873. It took more than two weeks for his body to travel back across country, and he was interred in the south section of Laurel Hill East, Section 7 on 29 May 1873. His gravestone has the raised symbol of the 4th Artillery on it. Yet even as the Modocs enjoyed their greatest battlefield triumph, they were dragging bottom. They'd been living in the open for more than five months. They were clothed in torn rags and worn shoes. They had but a small cache of dried beef remaining. On 10 May, when another attempted ambush at Soras Lake went awry, the resistance fractured. One group headed west and south toward Lower Klamath Lake. The other, under Captain Jack, made for the canyons east of Clear Lake. Over the next three weeks, the Modocs were run to ground, group by small group, and forced to surrender. On 1 June, Captain Jack handed his Springfield rifle to a scout, shook hands, and said he was done. With that, the shooting phase of the Modoc War came to an end. 
Considering the number of Indians involved, it may have been the costliest war between the U.S. government and Native Americans in terms of lives lost and money spent. The confrontations in the Oregon-California lava beds led to 27 Modocs captured, mostly women and children, and 18 Modocs killed, including seven men, eight women, and three children. When the death toll for the U.S. is broken down, we find it includes one general, one peace commissioner, one captain, five lieutenants, including Harris, four sergeants, four corporals, three buglers, 24 privates, one cavalryman, one artilleryman, one packer, two members of the 1st Oregon Volunteers, three citizens, and two Indian scouts. Now, Colonel Jeff Davis had the reputation as a hothead. During the Civil War, he had shot and killed another Union general officer, William Bull Nelson, in 1862. Davis made plans to hang most of the surviving Modocs on the spot, starting with the man who had killed Canby, Captain Jack. The gallows had just been completed when Davis received orders from Washington to stand down. Sherman and the Grant administration had opted for a final solution with a greater gloss of legality than summary execution. So in the summer of 1873, the United States Army convened a military commission at Fort Klamath, Oregon, and conducted a war crime trial in the killing of General Canby and Reverend Thomas. This was the only time in this nation's history that Native Americans were tried for war crimes. The accused were Captain Jack, Chanchin, Boston Charlie, Black Jim, Barnshow, and Slow Luck. Hooker Jim, Bogus Charlie, who got his nickname because he was always telling tall tales, and Shack Nasty Jim had turned state's evidence. Ellen's man, another accused, had been killed. The charge? Violation of the laws of war and attacking a peace commission under cover of a flag of truce. The prisoners were not represented by counsel. While a military commission may sound like due process, the transcript shows the proceedings were little more than a show trial. After only four days, the Modocs were convicted and condemned to hang. The United States government had just held the Modocs to a higher standard than it did its own. As U.S. soldiers who violated the laws of war during the Modoc and other Indian wars were never tried and punished as war criminals. Ironically, to justify trying the Modocs for war crimes, the government had to acknowledge the tribe's sovereignty and formally recognize the Modocs as true belligerents on the battlefield. This was unprecedented. Other Indian belligerents tried in the United States were treated as common criminals, as murderers, but not as soldiers of a nation at war against the United States. Their execution was a public spectacle in front of a crowd of some 2,000, including the imprisoned Modocs in the stockade and nearly all the Indians from the Klamath Indian Reservation. The hanging was carried out at 10 a.m. on 3 October 1873. At the last moment, President Grant commuted the sentences for the two youngest of the condemned, Barnshow and Slowluck, to life imprisonment on Alcatraz. 
As for the four who died on the rope, their indignity reached beyond public hanging. Soldiers carried the bodies to a tent where a waiting army surgeon decapitated them. The headless corpses were then returned to their coffins and dropped into unmarked graves. The surgeon later shipped the prepared skulls to the Army Medical Museum in Washington, D.C. in a barrel labeled Specimens of Natural History. A Quaker Indian killer, Ben Wright, had met his end years before in 1856 when he was ambushed at a dawn raid by a Shoshone brave named Enos who killed Wright with an axe and, as legend has it, ate his heart raw. As of 2023, about 600 Modoc live in Klamath County, Oregon, in and around their ancestral homelands. The same Modoc leaders who were pilloried in the press 150 years ago are now considered heroes by many in the Indian community. Lin Shanchin, former chairman of the Klamath tribes, recently said, I was always proud of my great-great-grandfather, Shanchin John. He fought the U.S. cavalry for his people. He and Captain Jack and the others laid down their lives for their land and for their freedom. They should be honored as patriots and heroes like George Washington. They are by Indian people. Ken Tanner, chief of the Coquille tribe, remembers that as a boy in Coos Bay, Oregon, he grew up on stories of Captain Jack. Both my mother and father looked up to Captain Jack and the Modoc people as real heroes. Captain Jack had the courage to stand against those who sought to take his homeland. The lava beds were made into a national monument in 1925, and the area called Captain Jack's Stronghold is a popular visiting spot. And there are 13 different hiking trails also. Also on the site is a California National Landmark called Canby's Cross. This commemorates the place where General Canby was assassinated by Captain Jack in April 1873. In 1954, Warner Brothers distributed a cinemascope movie called Drumbeat, which was loosely based on the Modoc War. Alan Ladd played veteran Indian fighter Johnny McKay. He was sent west by General Grant, played by Hayden Rourke. His enemy, Captain Jack, is played by a 33-year-old Lithuanian-American from a Pennsylvania coal mining family named Charles Dennis Buczynski, except he'd recently changed his name due to the House Un-American Activities Committee, fearing an Eastern European name might attract attention. In this movie, he used his new name for the first time. It was Charles Bronson. In 1898, the Army transferred the skulls of Captain Jack and the others to the Smithsonian Institution. In the 1970s, when his descendants learned that his skull was at the Smithsonian, they appealed for its return. In 1984, the Smithsonian returned Captain Jack's skull to his relatives, who acted as tribal representatives to also receive the skulls of Boston Charlie, Black Jim, and John Shanchin, and of an unknown Modoc woman whose remains had been recovered from the lava beds. The heads and the bodies of the Modoc warriors were back together after more than 110 years.
By the end of June 1876, the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia's West Fairmont Park, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, was in full swing. Since May 10th, when the World's Fair was officially opened, by President Ulysses S. Grant and Brazilian Emperor Dom Pedro II, over two million visitors from every corner of the globe had viewed its wonders. Each day, tens of thousands packed the cavernous pavilions, admiring the incredible progress the United States had achieved in only one century. Foreigners were stunned by America's technological and industrial prowess, from the 650-ton Corliss engine, the largest ever built, to a new invention capable of transmitting voices called a telephone. Even Frenchmen were forced to admit that California wines gave their native vintages a run for their money. One of the most popular displays at the exposition was the Indian Office exhibit in the United States Government Building. Over 300 Native Americans from 53 tribes were transported to the fair. Their campsites became a living anthropology lesson for white visitors who could study clothing, tools, art, and weapons from the Navajo, Hopi, Apache, and Klingit. One guidebook breathlessly described the, quote, bows and arrows of sizes offering to suit all, from the little naked prospective warrior who is made to practice against the target, to the veteran over the door of whose tent hang the scalps of fourscore pale faces. Despite the vicarious shivers felt by visitors viewing these weapons, the message behind the Indian office exhibit was clear. Manifest destiny, the concept that God had predestined Christian Americans of European heritage to dominate the North American continent, was a fait accompli. World's Fair visitors could rest assured that Western civilization had totally subdued the arrow-wielding aboriginals, aside from a few minor flare-ups. Meanwhile, 2,000 miles west in the Dakota, Montana, and Wyoming territories, the messengers of manifest destiny were flexing their muscles against the latest challenge to white supremacy. It involved an uprising of the Sioux Nation, a confederation of several tribes, including the Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho. In 1868, the Fort Laramie Treaty had created the Great Sioux Reservation, giving Native Americans a relatively safe haven from further white encroachment. The ulterior motive behind the reservation was to concentrate and supposedly civilize Plains Indians, turning them from nomadic hunter-warriors into domestic stationary farmers. Meanwhile, their former domains would become available for development and exploitation by white settlers. When President Grant took office in 1869, he implemented a conciliatory policy toward Indians, halting army offensives against their tribes and pledging annuities and material aid to those who relocated to reservations. For a few years, an uneasy truce reigned in the northern Great Plains. This peace evaporated in the early 1870s as the new transcontinental railroad flooded the region with white immigrants, 
who decimated the great buffalo herds the Plains Indians relied on for food. A gold rush in the Black Hills region of the Dakota Territory, the sacred land of the Sioux, attracted over 10,000 miners in 1874 and 1875. With their last remaining sanctuary under siege, members of the Sioux Nation increased their resistance to the white intrusion. The Lakotas intensified their attacks on settlers and soldiers, including assaults against the military garrisons of Fort McKean and Fort Abraham Lincoln. In response, the U.S. government issued an order requiring all Plains Indians to report to a reservation by January 31, 1876, or be considered hostile. General Philip Sheridan, commander of the Military Division of the Missouri, mobilized several thousand army troops to enforce this order and to neutralize those Indians who did not comply. The soldiers of the Sioux campaign were commanded by Civil War generals trying to earn a living in the shrunken post-war army. Foremost among them was George Armstrong Custer, the boy general of the Golden Lot. Custer graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1861, last in his class and with a record number of 726 demerits. But he distinguished himself in Civil War battles from Antietam to Appomattox. In 1863, Custer was appointed Brigadier General at the tender age of 23. By the end of the Civil War, Major General Custer was a national hero, renowned for his reckless courage in battle, his black velvet uniform with coils of gold lace, and his cascading blonde locks, which he perfumed with cinnamon-scented oil. But after the war ended, his rank was reduced from Major General to Lieutenant Colonel, and he needed a job. In 1866, Lieutenant Colonel Custer headed west, leading the newly created 7th United States Cavalry Regiment in a successful campaign against the Cheyenne Indians. Before long, Custer's troops affectionately called their leader Hardass, or Iron Butt, for his stamina in the saddle. Custer was second in command during the Yellowstone Expedition of 1873, protecting engineers as they surveyed a route for the Northern Pacific Railroad and fighting Indian forces led by war leaders Chief Gall and Crazy Horse. The following year, Custer led the expedition into the Black Hills of Dakota, broadcasting the presence of gold and starting the rush that had triggered the current hostilities. One of the officers under his command for both the Yellowstone and Black Hills expeditions was a wild young man from Philadelphia, 2nd Lieutenant Benjamin Hubert Hodgson. Benny, as he was universally known to his family and friends, was born in 1848 to Joseph and Mary Hodgson in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. Joseph Hodgson was a whale oil merchant whose warehouses lined the southern end of Delaware Avenue. After Benny flunked out of Central High School in his second year, his affluent father engineered a West Point commission for his wayward son. As a cadet, Benny compiled a record that George Custer himself might have envied. He earned 747 demerits, 21 more than the boy general, 
and graduated 45th out of 58 students in the class of 1870. Benny was appointed a second lieutenant in Company B of the 7th Cavalry. His military duties took him back and forth across the rapidly expanding country, from South Carolina and Louisiana to Kansas, Colorado, and the Dakota and Montana territories. In 1874, after serving on the Black Hill Expedition, the short-tempered lieutenant also faced a court-martial for threatening a civilian with a pistol and for conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. But Custer wrote a letter testifying to Benny's good character, both as an efficient and meritorious officer and a thorough and courteous gentleman. After his acquittal in 1875, Hodgson took a six-month leave of absence before rejoining his company in April 1876 at Fort Abraham Lincoln in the Dakota Territory. On May 17, 1876, an expeditionary force under General Alfred Terry left Fort Abraham Lincoln to seek out and subdue hostile Sioux. General Terry ordered Custer and his 7th Cavalry to move ahead of the main body and locate the encampment of Sitting Bull. The legendary Hunkpapa Lakota leader and visionary was believed to be somewhere between the Rosebud River and the Little Bighorn River in the Montana Territory. While Terry cautioned the impetuous Custer to wait for the main column if he encountered the enemy, he also told him to use your own judgment and do what you think best if you strike the trail. Custer had dreams of recapturing his Civil War glory and being hailed as a conquering hero at the Philadelphia Centennial with Sitting Bull in tow. By this time, 2nd Lieutenant Benjamin Hodgson had been named acting adjutant of companies A, G, and M under Major Marcus Reno. The 27-year-old officer was slightly built and wiry and sported a long, droopy, walrus mustache to add maturity to his boyish features. Despite a hair-trigger temper, his ready wit made Hodgson popular among both officers and enlisted men. His nickname was the Jack of Clubs, after the face card that signifies success and happiness. Hodgson was a particular favorite of Marcus Reno, a normally irascible officer whom Indian scouts called the man with the dark face. On June 22nd, Custer and the 7th Cavalry reached the valley of the Little Bighorn River, near the site of a Sioux encampment identified by Indian scouts as Sitting Bull's village. Ignoring his subordinates' advice, Custer divided his regiment into four segments, Major Reno and Lieutenant Hodgson, leading companies A, G, and M, would approach the village from the south with orders to move forward at as rapid a gait as prudent and to charge. Custer and five companies would cross the Little Bighorn River further north and attack the village from the opposite end. Captain Frederick Benteen would take three companies and reconnoiter south of the village, while Captain Thomas McDougall's company would escort a pack train carrying backup ammunition and supplies. On June 25th, Reno and his battalion descended from the bluffs overlooking the Little Bighorn. They crossed the river and moved slowly toward a cloud of dust in the distance that indicated horses. 
they knew they were approaching Sitting Bull's village. They had no idea that the village was actually a major encampment covering more than 300 acres and containing roughly 8,000 people, including nearly 2,000 warriors. Several witnesses saw Reno chugging from a bottle of liquor, which he passed to Hodgson before giving the order to charge. His 140 cavalrymen rushed forward into the blinding dust, glimpsing the ghostly figures of mounted warriors dashing in all directions ahead of them. Suddenly, about one quarter mile from Sitting Bull's village, Reno changed his mind. He ordered his men to dismount and form a skirmish line. He would later defend his actions by saying that he sensed a trap and wanted to keep an escape route open. Counting off by fours, his battalion formed into three rows of prone, kneeling, and standing riflemen, while the remaining fourth held horses ready behind the line of fire. Military historians surmise that if Reno's battalion had continued its charge, it might have thrown the Sioux camp into panic and captured it. Instead, the skirmish line not only reduced the battalion's firepower by one-fourth, but ensured that it would waste ammunition on targets too far away to hit. Despite this, the soldiers' gunfire killed ten women and children in the unsuspecting village, along with as many warriors. Reno's abrupt change in tactics also gave villagers time to mount a counterattack against what was now a stationary target. Five hundred warriors, led by Crazy Horse, charged into Reno's 140 men. As his soldiers fell around him, Reno appeared to lose control, issuing orders to mount and then dismount again. Finally, he waved his six-shooter and shouted, Any of you men who wish to make your escape, follow me. He fled to a wooded area without giving a formal order to retreat, leaving his men in confusion as they stumbled after him. By now, the warriors outnumbered the soldiers five to one and were surrounding Reno's forces. The battle had degenerated into sheer chaos. In the words of historian Nathaniel Philbrick in The Last Stand, they were in the midst of every officer's worst nightmare, the wild disorder of a battalion left to fend for itself. These were no longer soldiers. These were the frightened members of a desperate mob. Since no attempt had been made to cover the soldiers' retreat, the Indians were free to hunt the men as if they were buffalo, riddling them with bullets, pummeling them with stone hammers, and shooting them with arrows. Gradually, the warriors routed the surviving soldiers from the woods and drove them across a flatland littered with prairie dog holes that made their horses stumble and fall. The desperate men surged toward a makeshift fording place on the Little Bighorn River that became a scene of even worse slaughter. Troopers and their horses plummeted ten feet from the west bank to the river below, floundered through fifty feet of swiftly flowing water, and then struggled up the steep east bank. There, the primary egress was a narrow V-shaped cut that quickly became jammed with a frantic mass of men and horses easy targets for the warriors gathered on either bank. Within minutes, the river water grew thick with blood. According to eyewitnesses, Benny Hodgson was halfway across the river on horseback 
when bullets struck his leg and killed his horse, throwing the wounded lieutenant into the water. A fellow officer reported hearing Hodgson cry, For God's sake, don't abandon me! Struggling to stand, Hodgson grabbed the stirrup of a passing rider and was dragged through the water. Because of the confusion, the identity of Hodgson's savior remains uncertain. He has been named as Company M Trumpeter Charles Bounce Fisher, although Private William E. Morris also claimed credit for aiding Hodgson. Regardless of whose stirrup the lieutenant grasped, it was a futile attempt to survive. As the wounded Hodgson struggled up the east bank, another bullet found its mark and killed him immediately. Finally, on the bluff above the Little Bighorn River that would later be called Reno Hill, the 80-some survivors of the battalion regrouped. Below them, Lakota villagers, enraged over the unprovoked attack on their homes, began to kill wounded soldiers and then strip and mutilate the dead. Forty of Reno's men had already been killed, several more were wounded, and an undetermined number were missing in action. Soon, the survivors were joined by Benteen's battalion and McDougal's pack train. One eyewitness reported that Reno greeted McDougal by waving a bottle of whiskey and telling him, Look here, I got half a bottle left. Then he pointed to the river and muttered, Benny is lying right over there. Later, Reno descended the bluff and attempted unsuccessfully to rescue Hodgson's corpse. He was able to retrieve Benny's West Point class ring and a few other personal items before being repulsed. The combined forces of Reno, Benteen, and McDougal remained atop Reno Hill until the morning of June 27th, pinned down by enemy fire. During the night of June 26, three enlisted men from B Troop recovered Hodgson's body. One of them, Sergeant Benjamin C. Criswell, was wounded during the retrieval and would later receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. The morning of June 27th, the Jack of Clubs was sewn in an army blanket and buried on Reno Hill. Benny Hodgson, five days short of his 28th birthday, would be one of the few members of the 7th Cavalry to receive a proper burial at Little Bighorn. Reno's abortive attack and retreat, later termed the Valley Fight, was, in the end, a mild diversion from the wholesale slaughter taking place about 3.5 miles north of his location. On June 25th and 26th, Custer's Battalion of Five Companies was annihilated in the Battle of the Little Bighorn, popularly known as Custer's Last Stand. The official U.S. casualty count was 268 dead and 55 severely wounded, six of whom would later die from their wounds. Among the dead were Custer himself, two of his brothers, a nephew, and a brother-in-law. The survivors of the Valley fight did not know it at the time, but they were the lucky ones. News of Custer's last stand in Reno's Valley fight rolled across the country like a shockwave. It reached the East Coast shortly after the triumphant Independence Day celebration of the nation's centennial. On July 5th, the lead article on the front page of the New York Times had crowed about a second century begun and the nation's steady progress 
since the great deed in Philadelphia 100 years ago. The next day, July 6th, the Times gasped, Massacre of our troops, five companies killed by Indians, the battlefield like a slaughter pen. On July 11, 1876, the Philadelphia Public Ledger reported, Lieutenant Benjamin H. Hodgson of the 7th U.S. Cavalry, who is reported among the killed in Custer's disastrous fight with the Sioux, was the son of Joseph B. Hodgson, Esquire, of 2317 Green Street in this city. The article spoke of Hodgson's brave and gallant conduct under circumstances of the most trying character. The death of Custer and his troops served as a rallying point for the United States to force Northern Plains Indians onto reservations. Within a year, Native American hunting grounds were occupied by Army forces, most of the declared hostiles surrendered, and the Black Hills were annexed by the U.S. government without compensation. It appeared that white Americans' dream of manifest destiny had indeed been fulfilled. When Sitting Bull's campsite was occupied, soldiers retrieved the casing of Hodgson's gold pocket watch. It was identified by its inscription and returned to his father, who had presented it to Benny upon his graduation from West Point. Hodgson's body would remain on Reno Hill for another year. In 1877, Robert N. Price, a fellow Philadelphian and West Point graduate of the class of 1870, traveled to Little Bighorn to retrieve his classmate's body. Hodgson was reinterred in his family plot in South Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section 10, Lot 126, on July 23, 1877. Of the eight soldiers from Philadelphia killed at the Little Bighorn, Benny was the only one to find his way home. Over the years, a number of legends have grown up around Lieutenant Hodgson. Some of his fellow officers later describe premonitions Benny had shared before the battle. In these dreams, he saw himself dying after being unhorsed while crossing a river. He allegedly asked a number of his fellow troopers to ride by if they saw him struggling in a river so that he could grasp their stirrups. Several modern-day visitors to Little Bighorn have reported seeing the ghostly figure of a young man with a long handlebar mustache and a tortured expression. At least one has identified the phantom as Hodgson after seeing his photograph. Today, the remains of Benjamin H. Hodgson rest beneath a broken column at Laurel Hill, the traditional 19th century memorial for a man who died in his prime. His officer's gloves and plumed helmet rest at the base of the column, while his sheathed cavalry saber hangs from the broken top. It is a grave designed to signify the final resting place of a military hero. A poem penned by Hodgson's friend Robert Price graces one side of the base. He the prize hath won, earth's conflict o'er, its warfare done. He entered fame's bright portal. And o'er the ford, beyond the strife, above the stream of earthly life, he's gained the life immortal. Across from Benny's monument stands another broken marble column, similar yet starkly different. 
The shattered capital of the column rests on a pile of rocks at the base, while a single strand of ivy symbolizing remembrance snakes up the column. A simple cross on a string dangles from the jagged top, as though seeking forgiveness. There's no military vainglory here. The monument suggests a life that ended suddenly and unnaturally. This is the grave of Benny Hodgson's younger brother, Robert. He died at age 26 on August 6, 1876, roughly one month after news of Benny's death reached his family. His simple epitaph reads, He made earth more beautiful. He makes heaven more attractive. Attempts to research Robert's death have yielded no obituaries or additional information. In 19th century grave iconography, a broken or shattered object is often shorthand for a violent death, either murder or suicide. Is it possible that Robert, mourning the loss of his older brother, decided to join him in death? Was Robert Hodgson the final victim of the Battle of the Little Bighorn? This is yet another mystery enshrouding the short life and brutal death of Lieutenant Benjamin Hodgson, the Jack of Clubs. Let's take a break. Uh, I told you there's a lot of information in this one. There are several terrific tours coming up at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West during June and early July. Saturday, June 3rd at 10 a.m., guide Pat Rose helps celebrate Gay Pride Month with her fascinating tour called Out of the Closet and Into the Crypt. The next day, on Sunday, June 4th at 1 p.m., she moves over to Laurel Hill West for her brand new tour, Love is for All, LGBTQ plus stories of Laurel Hill West. Later in the day, on June 3rd, the Divine Hand Ensemble, the only theremin-fronted band, will push the bounds of classical music at Laurel Hill East, beginning at 7 p.m. Friday, June 9th, movie night at the cemetery with the classic Creature from the Black Lagoon. It starts at 8.30 p.m. at Laurel Hill East. Saturday, June 10th, there's an introductory Hotspots and Storied Plots tour at Laurel Hill East, from 10 a.m. until noon. And also on Saturday, June 10th, but in the afternoon at 3 p.m. in the Green Burial section at Laurel Hill West, there's the first of four monthly 90-minute sessions called Nurture with Nature, Therapeutic Horticulture. Thursday, June 22nd, members-only event, Summer Solstice Cocktail Mixology Workshop from 6.30 to 8.30 in the Chapel of Peace section of Laurel Hill West. If you are not a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill, why not? You save money on tours. You get a discount at the gift shop. You get two annual members-only podcasts. And you get special get-togethers, like this one, the Mixology Workshop. You also go on special members-only tours, including some visits inside the mausoleums. It's worth it. Go ahead, get yourself a membership to the Friends of Laurel Hill. Friday, June 23rd, 10 a.m. is another Hot Spots introductory tour at Laurel Hill East. The next day, Saturday, June 24th, is an introductory tour at Laurel Hill West 
at 10 a.m. Sunday, June 25th at 10 a.m., veteran tour guide Mary Ellen Moran shows you Laurel Hill East as a sculpture garden, highlighting memorials that look over the final resting places of the famous and the infamous. And Tuesday, June 27th, from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m., there's a free lunch at the Laurel Hill West Conservatory, where you can explore the concept of a green burial and take a tour of the green burial area at Laurel Hill West. Reserve your space. Get your tickets now from laurelhillphl.com slash events slash calendar. Let's get back to the podcast. If you look at a Spanish map of North America from the early 1700s, you will see an area that now includes portions of Chihuahua, Sonora, Mexico, New Mexico, and Arizona territories. Because of the people who live there, this area was named Apicheria. It was a sprawling landscape of about 140,000 square miles of mountains and canyons, rivers and uplands, barren deserts and near-Arctic peaks. The Apaches had lived there for many centuries. Many tribes made up the Apache. The best known are the Chiricahuas, who were called Cherry Cows by the settlers, the Warm Springs, or Ojo Caliente, the Mescaleros, and numerous other smaller groups. They essentially treated each other like cousins, and as in contemporary life, cousins didn't always get along. Apaches were excellent horsemen. Their primordial weapons were rocks, bows with stone-tipped arrows, lances, knives, and clubs, but no tomahawks. The white man introduced them to the rifle, and they soon became skilled with it. They acquired more rifles, either by bartering or theft. Often they would raid supply wagons and abscond with all the weapons and ammunition. And because of where they were located, their bullets were frequently made out of silver, as it was more readily available than lead. The traditional Apache weapon was the bow and arrow. The bow was usually made of mulberry. The bowstrings were made of deer tendon, later cattle or horse tendon. The arrows were made of cane. They were fletched with hawk or eagle feathers. The heads were obsidian or flint. Their maximum effective range was about 150 yards. An experienced warrior usually carried a spare bowstring and maybe an extra bow stave as well. It took more than 300 years for Apicheria to be settled by whites to the point of mortal conflict with its original inhabitants. The earliest contact seems to have taken place around 1530. As more Euro-Americans settled the area, the usual problems of shared resources led to a prolonged confrontation that lasted for nearly 70 years. Among the indigenous leaders of Apache were familiar names like Cochise, 1805-1874, Geronimo, 1829-1909, and Loco, 1823-1905. The leader of the Chehenda branch of Chiricahua was Bidu Ya, born around 1825. The Mexicans called him Victorio. 
His sister was the famed woman warrior Lozen, or the dexterous horse thief. In the summer of 1866, a year after the Civil War ended and more than six months after the 13th Amendment finally abolished slavery throughout the country, the United States needed the largest peacetime army in its history. During the war, more than 185,000 African Americans had served in the Union Army and another 20,000 in the Navy. Sixteen had been awarded the Medal of Honor. The U.S. Colored Troops, USCT, had proven their worth, and emancipation had made several hundred thousand potential recruits available. The United States Congress passed the Army Reorganization Act of 1866. It provided for 30 new regiments, each of about 800 troops, including two cavalry and four infantry regiments, quote, composed of colored men, end quote. They had voted to limit the army to 24,000 troops. 20% would be black. Several tasks required such a sizable armed force, occupying the recalcitrant south, patrolling the Mexican border, protecting construction of transcontinental railroads, guarding wagon routes to the Colorado and Montana gold fields. And this was the harshest, most demanding sector of the Indian frontier. From 1870 to 1880, Victorio, chief of the Copper Mine Membrenos and principal leader of all the Chehenda Apaches, along with Loco, chief of the Warm Spring Membrenos and second-ranking among the Chehendi, were moved to and left at at least three different reservations, some more than once, despite their band's request to live on traditional lands. In July 1872, Brigadier General Oliver O. Howard met with Victorio and established a bond. He agreed that the Chehenis should return to Ojo Caliente, but this was delayed pending Howard's effort to make peace with the powerful Chiricahua chief Cochise, who had ravaged Arizona for a decade. Howard succeeded, but in his mind, the creation of the Ojo Caliente Reservation was conditional on Cochise agreeing to move there. Cochise refused, so instead Howard established the Chiricahua Reservation for him in southeastern Arizona. Victorio believed, with good reason, that General Howard had promised that his band could immediately return to Ojo Caliente, and understandably he felt betrayed. But in 1877, policymakers decided to consolidate all the Apache bands at San Carlos, a hot, disease-ridden place on a parched stretch of the Gila River in Arizona. Victorio and his people were herded across the mountains to that desolate place. Many natives died from malaria, a disease they had never encountered before. Victorio and his men stayed only a few months before they had to break away and head back to their homes. Army patrols swarmed into the mountains of western New Mexico and edged Victorio northward until he surrendered at Fort Wingate. The army was not willing to care for the prisoners so close to the Navajos, who acted as scouts for the army and were enemies of the Apaches. So they moved them back to Ojo Caliente, pending a decision on their future. Still classified as prisoners of war, 
the Chehenes awaited the government's decision with mounting frustration. And after two years of uncertainty and insecurity, and following yet another rumor that they were going to be moved to San Carlos, Victorio had had enough. In the autumn of 1879, he declared war. The United States had the full might of its army on its side, but several factors favored the Chehenes. First, of course, was Victorio himself, a splendid warrior and natural leader of conviction, who often said that he would rather die than be sent back to San Carlos. Second was the physical endurance of his people, who were accustomed to traveling long distances, day and night, without rest, food, or water. Third was the tortuous nature of the country itself, the steep precipices and plunging canyons webbing the Black Range and Mogollon Mountains. The Chehenes knew every rocky height and sinuous crevice of the tangled land, and they knew how to position themselves on craggy elevations, invulnerable to enemy assault, and usually ideal for ambushing any pursuing force. The natives could also travel rapidly on fresh mounts. When their horses began to break down, they simply stole remounts from the nearest ranch. The cavalry, by contrast, had to purchase their own horses or wait for their arrival from the east. Many of these animals rapidly broke down in some of the most punishing mountains in the west. Finally, the Chehenes knew well the safety offered by the international boundary. When they were too closely pressed, they could find refuge in Mexico. And the United States and Mexico would not make an agreement to allow their armies to cross the border in pursuit of an enemy, but they frequently did so anyway. Victorio faced a strong force, principally composed of black troopers of the 9th and 10th Cavalry, led by some of the army's most skilled frontier fighters. The 9th garrisoned in New Mexico, the 10th in West Texas, into which Victorio's band occasionally spilled. Plagued in civilian life by racism and discrimination, blacks found a better life in the military. The black regiments, therefore, boasted the highest reenlistment rates and the lowest desertion rates in the army. But because of their limitations in education, The black troops were looked down upon by many others, especially since they did not have enough literate men to be clerks and non-commissioned officers. The senior officers were all white, of course. Colonel Edward Hatch commanded the 9th Cavalry. He had endured his own share of discrimination. Coming out of volunteer service in the Civil War as a general officer, He attained colonelcy in the regular army because of his distinguished wartime service. Such origins, rather than West Point and the regulars, counted against him, as did his command of black regiments. He passed his entire post-war career, more than a quarter of a century, commanding black regiments. Colonel Hatch also served as commander of the territory of New Mexico, headquartered in Santa Fe. His principal field commander was Major Alfred P. Morrow, a courageous, dogged field soldier who commanded all the troops in southern New Mexico with headquarters at Fort Bayard. And once on the trail, he refused to let go. 
A junior officer with this troop, which the natives had started to call the Buffalo Soldiers, was the young Philadelphian, Lieutenant James Hansel French, who was born in 1851. After a public education in Philadelphia, he attended the U.S. Military Academy and graduated with honors in June 1874. At the Academy, he was popular. He earned the same reputation which his subsequent career sustained, that of a reckless, daring fellow, fond of both the dash and hardships of the soldier's life. His first assignment was with the 9th Cavalry. French, who went by his middle name, Hansel, was the son of Clayton French, 1824-1890, Laurel Hill East, Section J. Clayton was a pharmacist who in 1840 ran his own drugstore at the northwest corner of 10th and Market with his partner, William H. Richards, Laurel Hill East, Section L. Clayton's mother, Catherine Ann Hansell French, was the daughter of the expert watchmaker, James Morris Hansell. Despite the name French, Clayton had his roots in England, although his family had been in America for about 200 years. The original spelling of the surname was F-F-R-E-N-C-H, with two lowercase f's. Thomas French, who had been baptized in a church in Northamptonshire in 1637, was later imprisoned because he left the Church of England and became a Quaker. It was this reason that caused him to emigrate, settle in Burlington, West New Jersey, on the 23rd of July, 1680. That's the old-style calendar. He was one of the proprietors of West New Jersey in America, having a grant of one-nineteenth of the one-eighths of New Jersey. Thomas's great-grandson times five, Clayton French, and William Richard's pharmacy business had attracted the attention of another entrepreneurial pharmacist, John K. Smith, Laurel Hill East Section G. He had opened his drugstore in 1830. When John's brother George joined the firm in 1841, it became John K. Smith & Company. In 1865, the Smiths joined with Malin Klein to form Smith, Klein & Company. In 1870, Smith's nephew Malin K. Smith, Laurel Hill East Section T, joined the firm. And in 1891, Smith, Klein & Company, bought out French Richards and Company, and they became Smith, Klein, and French, which became a pharmaceutical giant for much of the 20th century. In 1989, SKNF merged with the Beecham Group to form Smith, Klein, Beecham, and in 2000, another merger formed the group, Glaxo Smith, Klein. During his time in Texas, 2nd Lieutenant J. Hansel French saw much action against the Apaches, especially with a huge number of border cattle thieves. Sometimes he would pursue the marauders beyond the Rio Grande. Once he broke into a secret storehouse on the other side of the border. It's where their arms were kept and he confiscated them. This defied the local Mexican authorities. For this act, he was almost court-martialed. But thanks to his superior officers, the incident went no further. Soon he was ordered to Fort Garland and marched his detachment over the desert plains for several weeks, enduring great hardships. He resigned from the army on 31 August 1876 due to illness. But recovered two years later, he rejoined in August 1878. He was soon back on the frontier 
taking part in hazardous missions against warring indigenous in the Southwest. By 1 January 1880, Arizona included in its department 13 posts and two military depots. Brevet Major General Edward Hatch, Colonel of the 9th Cavalry and commanding the District of New Mexico, ordered his entire regiment to the southern part of the territory and took personal command, assuring himself of unrivaled abuse from territorial newspapers which expected military miracles. Within the new year, Victorio again came north, killed an occasional prospector, ripped down telegraph wires, and fought whites here and there. The hellhounds are again at work in New Mexico, sighed the Star, the local newspaper. Mexican General Geronimo Trevino, who launched an operation with 400 men against Victorio on December 28th, was credited with driving him across the borderline. But Victorio was often pursued and rarely driven. Major Morrow was supposed to be the stone wall against which Victorio would smash himself. The Star announced on January 8th that, quote, General Carr and Major Morrow have the renegades about where they want them, end quote. But Victorio's fighters whiffed past like shadows, and two days later they were reported in the Black Mountains, Morrow with five companies of cavalry in pursuit, 24 hours behind. Then on the upper Rio Puerco, on 12 January, Morrow caught up and a sharp fight ensued, lasting from about 2 in the afternoon until dark. Several indigenous were thought to have been hit. Morrow reported the deaths of Sergeant Gross and the wounding of two of his men. The hostiles then broke for the San Mateo Mountains, northeast of Fort Bayard, where they were overtaken within a week. On 17 January 1880, 2nd Lieutenant James Hansel French, while serving under Major Morrow, was killed by Apaches while pursuing Victorio in the mountains. He was 28 years old. His comrade, Lieutenant M.W. Day, wrote a letter to Clayton French. It becomes my painful duty to inform you of the death of your son, J. Hansel French, who was killed at the head of his company in action with Victoria's sick band of hostile Indians in the San Mateo Mountains, New Mexico, about 25 miles from Ojo Caliente on the 17th. There was a five-week delay before his body was returned to his family, and he was interred at Laurel Hill East, Section J, Lot 112, on February 28, 1880. He has a beautiful marker on his grave. After the battle at San Mateo, the Apache once again escaped, and once more the hard-riding Major Morrow and his campaign-wearied troopers pushed on along Victorio's trail across the Rio Grande, and again they caught up, this time on 3 February 1880, in a canyon northeast of Ailman's Well on the Jornada de Muerte near the San Andres Mountains. Parts of five companies, plus the Indian scouts, ran into the hostiles, who had been placed, quote, in squads of 15 or 20 men upon the sides of the canyon, end quote. Morrow drove them from ledge to crevice, but the task was hopeless. As soon as one enemy unit was routed, others opened up. 
The following day, the fight was resumed half-heartedly. Victorio broke off, and this time the U.S. troops did not pursue. Morrow's men had shot their bolt. They were utterly worn out, they were low on ammunition, and their supplies were about gone. A single unit was sent to pursue Victorio into the San Andres, a company under Captain H.L. Rucker that chased the enemy for two days, coming suddenly upon them strongly fortified in a narrow and rough canyon of the mountains. The troops were greeted by heavy fire, and several men and horses fell. The Apache perceived their advantage and charged the troops, who gave way and retreated in confusion. Now Victorio became the pursuer and drove the troops across the river. In the retreat, rations and bedding were abandoned, which the Apache secured. Two more companies of the 9th hurried south from Santa Fe, and Hatch again hastened onto the field, this time with more than a thousand troops. In a lengthy report written on 25 February from Ojo Caliente, Hatch described their work and the miserable conditions under which it was performed. The terrain, he explained, made the well-known Modoc lava beds a lawn by comparison. U.S. cavalry and infantry units chased Victorio and his band of men all over the Arizona and New Mexico territories during spring and summer, picking off a few members of his band here and there, losing more men and horses to injuries, illness, exposure, and Victorio once again slipped into Mexico to recuperate. For months, there were other battles that raged in a war of attrition for both sides. On the afternoon of 14 October 1880, about a thousand Mexican troops under General Joaquin Terrazas tracked down the marauders, assisted by token representation from troops north of the border. On daybreak on the 15th, the battle ended. Victorio, repeatedly wounded, was finished off by a Tarahumara scout named Mauricio Corredor, who received a reward of $3,000 and a fancy nickeled rifle. There are no eyewitness accounts of the death of Victorio, at least none are known to exist, and there was some question as to whether he ended his own life. In this great slaughter, Terrasas slew 78 Apaches, including Victorio and 60 warriors, plus a number of women and children, and he captured 68 women and children and 200 horses and mules. And much to the irony of the black troops, many of those captured were sold into slavery. Thirty Apache escaped. Teresa's losses were three killed and as many wounded, showing that Victorio's people were almost completely out of ammunition. Victorio's sister, the warrior Lozen, was one of the few who escaped to continue the battle. Five weeks later, on 16 November, 30 or 40 Apaches ambushed Taraz's troops on the high road between Chihuahua and El Paso, south of Carrizal, and nine Mexicans were killed outright. Among them was a sergeant who was mounted on Victorio's saddle and carrying a few trinkets from the body of the slain chief. The sergeant's corpse was slashed into tiny pieces by the enemy. 
The death of Victorio did not end the Apache Wars, which sputtered on for another 40-plus years. The last Apache raid into the United States occurred in 1924, less than 100 years ago, when a war party of natives, who were later caught and arrested, stole some horses from Arizona settlers. This was considered to be the end of the American Indian Wars, but the Apache-Mexican Wars continued for another nine years until the final holdouts were defeated at the Caste War of Yucatan in 1933. Several resistance groups held out on the Sierra Madre Mountains with sightings ranging from 1952 all the way to 2017 with some possible sightings from local ranchers, hikers, or explorers. Currently, there are Apache communities in Oklahoma and Texas and reservations in Arizona and New Mexico. Apache people have moved throughout the United States and elsewhere, including urban centers. The Apache nations are politically autonomous. They speak several different languages and have distinct cultures. Nearly 200,000 U.S. citizens call themselves Apache. Coyote was chief of the animals. Now he told them that the tribes of men were coming near, one and all. Everything he said came true. Then he said to them, Tomorrow the people will come out of the ground, and I will name them, and they will spread out. Then he named them. He named them till he had named all. And the people came out, and Coyote had no name for himself. Many people came out. Then he named himself Coyote. Thus came people, not we alone, but all people. There was an enormous something that was named Ilswawitsix. That monster called all birds, all animals, and all things to him and he swallowed them. Now Coyote heard about that monster and started towards him. The trail he took went by Omatia, Wallawa, and Imnaha. He crossed the Imnaha River, and with his flint spear he dug through the ridge just across the Snake River from Whitebird. He crossed the Snake River and went up Whitebird Creek till he reached the top of the Salmon River Mountains on the north side. The monster was near that place. There, Coyote bound his head with grass and tied himself down with Coyote rope. The monster beyond called out, You and I, let us try who can suck the other into his body. Coyote mystified Ilswitwitzix, who said to himself, I wonder where that person is. Then Coyote nodded his head and Ilswitzwitzik saw him. Coyote stood up, and the monster said to him, You suck in with your breath first. And Coyote sucked so hard that he made Ilswitzwitzik move one of his legs. Then Ilswitzwitzik said to Coyote, It is now my turn. He drew a breath. He drew another breath, and the two breaths broke the rope. And Coyote ran until he came to the mouth of the monster. Then he said, Open your mouth, and I will go in. The monster said, Go in at the nose. But Coyote said, No. Coyote went in, and kept on till he was where the monster's heart hung. 
There he built a fire and cut away the flesh with his five knives. The monster asked Coyote in vain to come out. He said, let me vomit you. And Coyote replied, no, people might find out. He kept on cutting. The monster said, then go out at the ears or at the nose. At last, the heart came off and Coyote went out behind. The monster died and Coyote slaughtered him and gave all the people a piece. At Kamiya, he put down the heart. Thus, he delivered all the people. And thus came the Nimipu, meaning we the people, an indigenous people who have lived on the Columbia River Plateau in the Pacific Northwest region for at least 11,500 years. They were the dominant people of the plateau for much of that time, especially after they acquired horses from the Shoshona around 1730 and learned to breed a new type of horse, which they called the Appaloosa. Prior to first contact with European colonial people, the Nimipu were economically and culturally influential in trade and war, interacting with other indigenous nations in a vast network from the western shores of Oregon and Washington, the high plains of Montana, and the northern Great Basin in southern Idaho and northern Nevada. It was the French explorers and trappers who indiscriminately used and popularized the name Nipperse for the Nimipu and nearby Chinook. The name translates as pierced nose. The French pronounced the name Nipperse, but English speakers simplified the pronunciation to Nez Perce. When Lewis and Clark came through the Nez Perce territory in 1804-1806, it was approximately 17 million acres, maybe 26,500 square miles. That's an area about the size of Kentucky. Nez Perce territory covered parts of present-day Washington, Oregon, Montana, and Idaho. They were the largest tribe on the Columbia River Plateau, with a population of about 6,000. They had more than 70 permanent villages, ranging from 30 to 200 individuals, depending on the season and the social grouping. A peace with the United States dated back to the alliance arranged by Lewis and Clark, but the encroachment of gold miners in the 1860s and other Euro-American settlers in the 1870s put pressure on the Nez Perce. The 1855 Treaty of Walla Walla originally allowed them to keep seven and a half million acres of their traditional land. But in 1863, the U.S. government reduced their allotted land by 90%. The Nez Perce, who refused to give up their land, included the band living in the Wallowa Valley of Oregon, led by Heinmat Tuyala Kett, widely known as Chief Joseph. Tensions rose, and in May 1877, General Oliver Otis Howard called a council and ordered the non-treaty bands to move to the reservation. Oliver Otis Howard, 1830-1909, was a career United States Army officer and a Union general in the Civil War. As a brigade commander in the Army of the Potomac, Howard had lost his right arm while leading his men against Confederate forces at the Battle of Fair Oaks, Seven Pines, in June 1862. But that was an action that earned him the Medal of Honor. As a corps commander, he suffered two major defeats at Chancellorsville 
and Gettysburg in May and July 1863. But recovered from the setbacks as a successful corps and later army commander in the Western Theater. Howard had been given charge of the Freedmen's Bureau in mid-1865 with the mission of integrating former enslaved people into Southern society and politics during the second phase of the Reconstruction era. He attempted to protect freed blacks from hostile conditions, but he lacked adequate power and was repeatedly frustrated by President Andrew Johnson. Howard was also a leader in promoting higher education for freedmen, most notably in founding Howard University in Washington. He'd served as its president in 1867 through 73 before he resumed active duty in Indian Territory. Chief Joseph considered military resistance futile, and by 14 June 1877, he had gathered about 600 people at a site near present-day Grangeville, Idaho. But on that same day, a small group of warriors attacked white settlers nearby, which led to what we now call the Nez Perce War. After several small battles in Idaho, more than 800 Nez Perce, mostly non-warriors, took 2,000 head of various livestock, including horses, and they fled into Montana. Then they traveled southeast, dipping into Yellowstone National Park. A small number of Nez Perce fighters, probably fewer than 200, successfully held off larger forces of the U.S. Army in several skirmishes, including the two-day Battle of the Big Hole in southwestern Montana. They then moved northeast and attempted to seek refuge with the Crow Nation, but they were rebuffed and they headed for safety in Canada. Riding under Howard in Company K was a junior officer from Philadelphia named Jonathan Williams Biddle. Born 1 August 1855, the oldest child of Henry Jonathan Biddle and Mary Deborah Baird Biddle, he was named after his father's brother, who died the following year, and is buried in White Marsh, Pennsylvania. Jonathan attended Princeton University, graduated in 1876, and settled out west shortly after graduation. His father had been killed during the Civil War when Jonathan was just eight years old. Henry had attended West Point but did not graduate. On 1 June 1854, he married his distant cousin, Mary Baird, 12 years his junior, and they quickly had four children together. At the start of the Civil War, Henry Biddle was commissioned a captain of volunteers and he served as assistant adjutant general on the staff of Brigadier General George McCall. During the 30 June 1862 Battle of Glendale, General McCall ordered him to ride to the left of the Union battle line to change the direction of fire from two Federal artillery batteries. And while trying to carry out his mission, he came too close to the Confederate lines and was wounded by a volley from the 47th Virginia Infantry. After lingering at Chimborazo Hospital for nearly three weeks, Henry Biddle died of his wounds on 20 July 1862. In 1867, news of a fundraising effort to found the Freedmen's College of North Carolina reached Mary Biddle's Presbyterian congregation in Philadelphia, and she pledged $1,400 towards the founding of the school, which was named for her late husband, 
from 1867 until 1921. It was known as Biddle University. It was renamed Johnson C. Smith University in 1921, although the main academic and administrative building of the school, an imposing neo-Gothic structure, still stands. It is Biddle Hall. Johnson C. Smith remains a historically black private university with more than 1,300 students and its simple motto of sit looks, let there be light. Young Jonathan Biddle apparently inherited a martial spirit from his father and grandfather, but he also acquired a liking for the study of natural history from his uncle, his mother's brother, Professor Spencer Fullerton Baird, of the Smithsonian Institution. Now, out on the Western Plains, Jonathan thought he could gratify both desires, and possibly inspired by the Battle of the Little Bighorn in June 1876, he applied for a commission in the regular army. On 31 August 1876, he was appointed a second lieutenant in the 7th Regiment U.S. Cavalry. He went straight into active service. After the Nez Perce were rebuffed by the Crow, they decided to seek sanctuary with the Lakota, led by Sitting Bull. He had fled to Canada in May 1877 to avoid capture following the Battle of the Little Bighorn the year before. Over the next several months, the Nez Perce fought a series of battles and skirmishes with the U.S. Army during a fighting retreat of 1,170 miles. In late September, the clash came to a head alongside the Snake Creek at the base of Montana's Bear Paw Mountains, just 40 miles from the Canada-U.S. border. The Battle of Bear Paw began on 30 September 1877. There is a superb narrative about this encounter in the book Nez Perce Summer, 1877, The U.S. Army and the Nimipu Crisis. It is available online for free from www.nps.gov slash parkhistory slash online underline books slash NEP, N-E-P-E, slash green, G-R-E-E-N-E, slash. The portions concerning Lieutenant Biddle follow. Company K was sustaining severe losses more than 300 yards away on the right. There, Captain Owen Hale's men had advanced in formation along a flat ridge descending toward the southeast side of the Nez Perce position, only to find themselves isolated and exposed to sharpshooters in gullies adjoining the bluff on the south, who now turned on them with telling effect. Hale ordered his men to dismount and to move forward in skirmish formation, their shooting forcing the Nez Perce from their position below the bluff embankment from which they had fired on companies A and D. In the exchange, Lieutenant Biddle was one of the first casualties, killed by Nez Perce fire, according to one witness, while in the act of kneeling to shoot. From this point, the battle intensified, the warriors quickly circling through the swales and gulches to flank the soldiers and drive off and capture their animals. And when the troops approached the edge of the coulee, the fighting became hand-to-hand. Later in this same chapter, at one point, Colonel Miles approached the position of the beleaguered 7th Cavalry engaged at the far right. I was shocked to see the lifeless body of that accomplished officer and thorough gentleman Hale 
lying upon crest of a little knoll with his white charger beside him. A little further on was the body of the young and spirited Biddle. On just this first day of the battle, 30 September, the 7th Cavalry took the heaviest losses of any unit. Of 110 men, 16 were killed, 29 were wounded in action. Although Hale and Biddle were the only two officers killed, Jonathan Biddle was 22 years old when he died. The battle raged on for several more days, but then a large majority of the surviving Nez Perce, represented by Chief Joseph, surrendered to Generals Howard and Miles on 6 October 1877. Whitebird of the Lamata Band of Nez Perce managed to elude the army after the battle and did escape with an undetermined number of his band to Sitting Bull's camp in Canada. It was at this final surrender of the Nez Perce when Chief Joseph wearily said, Tell General Howard I know his heart. What he told me before I have in my heart. I am tired of fighting. Our chiefs are killed. The old men are all dead. It is cold. We have no blankets. The little children are freezing to death. I want to have time to look for my children and see how many of them I can find. Maybe I shall find them among the dead. Hear me, my chiefs. I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. 418 Nez surrendered, including women and children. They were taken prisoner and sent by train to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The New York Times wrote in an 1877 editorial on the Nez Perce War that, on our part, the war was in its origin and motive nothing short of a gigantic blunder and a crime. And the New York Herald said, Though they fought desperately, they betrayed none of those brutal instincts and practices which have hitherto accompanied the operations of the hostile Indians. These Nez Perce warriors refrained from murdering wounded prisoners in their hands, and they even declined to take any scalps from the dead. And the officers and the men who fought them express a high appreciation of their foes. Brave men like this can be made good citizens if the government pursues a generous course with them. Six weeks after his death, on 17 November 1877, Lieutenant Jonathan Williams Biddle was laid to rest at Laurel Hill East Cemetery, just a few feet from his father. On 25 May 1868, Mary Deborah Baird Biddle of 1623 Walnut Street, Philadelphia, had purchased a 660-square-foot plot of prime property at Laurel Hill Cemetery. It occupies a spit of land near Millionaire's Row. It's called K-Point. It's divided into four plots. She took lot number three, the southwest corner. The views of the Schuylkill are spectacular. She paid the premium rate of $2 per square foot. Father and son both have magnificent monuments laden with military symbolism. Jonathan's tombstone has beautiful sculptures on it of a cavalry hat and sword. His inscription says, 
Remains of 2nd Lieutenant Jonathan Williams Biddle, USA 7th Regiment of Cavalry, eldest son of Captain Henry J. and Mary D. Biddle. Born August 1, 1855. Killed in action near Bear Paw Mountain, Montana, in the engagement with the Nez Perce Indians, September 30, 1877. of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, guest podcaster and fellow Laurel Hill tour guide Tom Keels tells the story of art collector and museum curator Henry Plumer McElhenney, a man of whom Andy Warhol once said he was the only person in Philadelphia with glamour. Look for that on or about June 15th. The July edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, is called Reaching for the Stars, the transit of Venus. I'll explain what the transit is and why you won't see one in your remaining lifetime. Then we'll talk about Laurel Hill people who tracked the transit in prior centuries. Astronomer David Rittenhouse in 1761 and 1769, and photographer William H. Rao in 1874 and 1882, along with two female astronomers. 19th century's Hannah Mary Bouvier-Peterson, and 20th century's Dr. Sarah Lee Lippincott. Look for that on July 1st from wherever you listen to podcasts. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street, although spaces are very limited. There is an app you can download for a self-guided tour through its 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bala Kidwood, with parking at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk, or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, come up Writers Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. If you download the audio I've done for self-guided tours, they will lead you on a 40 to 45 minute audio tour that talks about the people in turn along the routes through the cemetery. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are currently open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. 
We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, skateboarders, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. And of course, we give frequent historic tours. Find out more, laurelhillphl.com slash events slash calendar. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. You can also follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook. Now, once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside-the-mausoleum visits. And at least two annual members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. And if you can't find it on the website, the key to finding the gift shop online is to click on support and then find the gift shop in the left-hand column. Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrow. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, and Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, are both research, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, whom you can reach through my email, joe at joelex.net. Yes, I do have an occasional guest podcaster. They do their own research. Remember to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around to hear the references that we use for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. I used a lot of material for this podcast, if you couldn't tell. And a lot of these articles are pretty old. I was very lucky to stumble upon them. For the Modocs, Songs of the Modoc Indians, my Albert S. Gatchet, that's G-A-T-S-C-H-E-T. American Anthropologist, January 1894, Volume 7, Number 1, January 1894, pages 26 to 31. A book by a guy who wrote a lot of books. His name is Cyrus Townsend Brady, LLD. And this is in a series of books about fighters in America. This is Northwestern Fights and Fighters. Um, Doubleday Page and Company, 1913. Costs of the Modoc War. Richard H. Dillon from the California Historical Society Quarterly, June 1949, volume 28, number 2, pages 161 to 164. Imperfect Justice, the Modoc War Crimes Trial of 1873 by Doug Foster. That was in the Oregon Historical Quarterly, fall of 1999, volume 100, number 3, pages 246 to 287. And a reviewed work, Remembering the Modoc War, Redemptive Violence and the Making of America's Innocence, by Boyd Cothran, The Modoc War, a Study of Genocide in the Dawn of America's Gilded Age, by Robert Aquinas McNally. That was a review 
in the Oregon Historical Quarterly, Volume 119, Number 1, Spring 2018, pages 126 to 129. Tom Keel said he got a lot of information about Benjamin Hodgson from his file in the archives at Laurel Hill Cemetery. He also used James Donovan's book, A Terrible Glory, Custer and the Little Bighorn, Boston, Little Brown and Company, 2008, and Nathaniel Philbrick's The Last Stand, Custer, Sitting Bull, and the Battle of Little Bighorn. It was Viking Press, New York, 2010. For Jonathan Williams Biddle, I used a couple of really old articles. One was called Myths of the Nez Perce Indians. The author was Herbert J. Spinden. This is from the Journal of American Folklore, January through March 1908, Volume 21, Number 80, pages 13 to 23. And Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce Warriors by Francis Haynes, the Pacific Northwest Quarterly, January 1954, Volume 45, Number 1, pages 1 through 7. For James Hansel French, information on the Apache Wars. First of all, the book, The Conquest of Apacheria, by Dan L. Thrapp, T-H-R-A-P-P. This is from 1967 by the University of Oklahoma Press. Then there's Red versus Black, Conflict and Accommodation in the Post-Civil War Indian Territory, 1865 to 1907. Co-authors, Donald A. Grind, Jr., G-R-I-N-D-E, and Quintard Taylor. That's from the American Indian Quarterly, Summer 1984, Volume 8, Number 3, pages 211 to 229. Victorio's Military and Political Leadership of the Warm Springs Apaches by Robert N. Watt. War in History, November 2011, Volume 18, Number 4, pages 457 to 494. Buffalo Soldiers, Myths and Realities by Frank Schubert. Army History, Spring 2001, Number 52, pages 13 to 18. Apaches Without and Enemies Within, the U.S. Army in New Mexico, 1879 to 1881. The author was Robert N. Watt, War in History, April 2011, Volume 18, Number 2, pages 148 to 183. And The Metamorphosis of SmithKline and French Laboratories to SmithKline Beecham, 1925 to 1998. That was by Glenn Oliot, U-L-L-Y-O-T, Barbara Hodgson Oliot and Leo B. Slater. And that was in the Bulletin of the History of Chemistry, Volume 25, Number 1, 2000. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay well.